0: You're listening to The Jazz Session with my dad, Jason Crane. one, basic hip.
1: Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 365. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. You'll find him at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz has a widget for this show, which is simply a little bit of code that you can put on your website, and it will display the latest episode of the Jazz Session. If that sounds like something you'd like to do, then go to allaboutjazz.com and type in Jazz Session Widget in the search bar. Put that code on your website, and then send me an email, okay, at jason at thejazzsession.com, because I'll mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. Speaking of the newsletter, you can get it at thejazzsession.com. Just click on Mailing List at the top. While you're there, please become a member. You can do it for as little as $10 a month. It's super easy, and it helps keep the show going. It really, really does help keep the show going, primarily by helping keep me going. If you're on iTunes, please review the show there. Just go to the iTunes store and type in Jazz Session. You'll find it in the podcast directory. Give it a star rating, and uh, please also add a few nice comments if you would. It just helps the show go up in the rankings, and that makes it more likely that people will find the show the same way you did. I'm also a poet. I've got a blog at jasoncrane.org where you'll find my poetry and also uh, my book, which is called Unexpected Sunlight. This is National Poetry Month right now, the month of April, and so each day this month I've been writing a new poem, and uh, there's quite a few there for you to see, so if you'd like to peruse through the National Poetry Month writing that I've done and also the writing I've done for the last several years, it's all there as are recordings of some of my readings. My guest today is a guitarist Uh, I've really enjoyed quite a bit since getting to meet him more than a decade ago now. I think that was in Rochester when I first met Joel Harrison. He's put out a lot of great music in the years since, and I've interviewed him on the radio and also previously on this podcast. If you go in the archives, You can hear that recording. He is now on two different albums that have just come out, one on the Sunnyside label called Search, which is uh, his own recording, and then one that he co-leads on the Cuneiform label called Holy Abyss. We'll hear music from Search right now, but we'll also hear music from Holy Abyss throughout the interview. And, of course, my conversation with Joel Harrison coming right up. (laughs) My guest is guitarist Joel Harrison. He's got a couple projects out these days, one called Holy Abyss that's on cuneiform, and another called Search, which features uh, some really fascinating compositions for strings uh, and other instruments. And it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. It's uh, I think it's, it's been four years we just figured out, and it seems like an incredible amount has happened in that time, and maybe it's it's kind of easiest to catch up by talking about these these two records, mm. um, maybe starting with Search, which the last time you were on we were talking about The Wheel, mm. and this uh, this feels to me, maybe it's too easy a comparison to make, but it feels to me like kind of a continuation of some of the ideas that came in on The Wheel.
2: Very much so, yeah, because since The Wheel, it's the project I would say that um, most attempts to combine classical music and, and jazz, which the The Wheel did, and specifically using strings, and really writing for strings from a little bit more of an orchestral point of view rather than uh, from a jazz point of view.
1: Can you talk about where your interest in in combining these
2: uh, originates? I think we spoke about it a little last time. Well, many, many years ago, my interest in these types of connections started, and I think it just started organically um, from growing up and really loving the music of uh, Ives and Coltrane simultaneously, uh, listening to Terry Riley string quartets and uh, the late Beethoven quartets and and just loving those, but also feeling like I was an improviser and, and needed to position myself more in an improvisational medium. But I wanted to do that in a way where I didn't have to give up all the wonderful compositional ideas that have sort of been with me and I've been working on for so long. So, uh, for me, jazz gets a little bit tedious, at least these days, when the same format is used that we're so used to, which is a rhythm section and a soloist. And I, I sort of joke these days that, you know, another great solo is just doesn't do it for me anymore (laughs) um and boy there are a bunch of great soloists out there so my antidote for that just to keep myself interested in my own music is to write more and to find ways to dovetail improvisation in with the writing which is a tricky business
1: And you do that while avoiding another, you know, fairly typical jazz convention, which is kind of like the head solo head format. This is here's a melody that exists purely to provide a vehicle for us to improvise, and then return to the right. melody. You're, you're writing particularly Unsearched, very much eschews that kind of that kind of approach.
2: Yeah, and I think it's really helpful to try to think like a big band composer when you're writing for a small group so you're looking for ways to position different soloists with different backgrounds and um i don't always achieve that but i i try to keep thing keep the listener guessing and keep things varied orchestrally You know, recently, uh,
1: I guess about two months ago, Tim Byrne was on the show, and he said something to me which I'd never really thought about, but I'd like to get your feedback on, which was that he feels sometimes he has to say to the musicians, don't be afraid to use the composed material when you're in an improvisatory setting. So in other words, it's not like we have to just play the composed part, and then we get to the improvised bit, and we fly off into space. He kind of sometimes feel like he feels like he has to remind folks to feel free to integrate the composed material. It's not you do not bear the full responsibility for thinking up an original musical idea as soon as we get to the improvised section. And so I wonder how that resonates with you, particularly vis-a-vis the music Mm. on search.
2: Well, I would say it's one of my pet peeves about improvisation in general is that too often it's based on something that's not connected enough to the composition. And I, I try to make a point of mentioning that, especially in longer pieces where... I become afraid that the listener is going to lose track of what's happening if, if the solos don't connect to the rest of the piece. Um, but, you know, you want to be a little bit careful not to tell people what to play. But I would say that um, even the greatest improvisers tend to just go into virtuoso mode, which can be very exciting. And um, maybe not incorporate enough of the thematic material of even their own compositions.
1: What do you do to to push yourself out of whatever idiomatic areas you may be in, either as a guitarist or a composer? How do you find ways to keep challenging yourself and pushing your music forward?
2: Well, it's in composition, it's pretty easy because I feel that I'm always playing catch-up to learning about great classical music. So there's these... Composers that I'm still discovering. Um, for instance, the Polish composer Ludoslawski. I've just started listening to some of his orchestra pieces and Ligeti and, you know, even some of the older masters. And there's just such a wealth of information there that you can bring to your jazz writing or, for that matter, to your non-improvised writing, which I do also. So that, I think, keeps things fresh. And, um, frankly, I don't really get ideas anymore from jazz, uh, as ridiculous as that might sound. I, I, I can enjoy listening to it and, you know, occasionally, uh, pick up a trick or two, or, you know, look at a big band or hear a big band chart, for instance, which I'm, I'm still learning to do, uh, well. Uh, and and get great ideas from somebody like Bob Brookmeyer or, or Duke or something like that. But as far as small ensemble jazz, unless it's my peers, um, who uh, there's there's a few of them that always surprise me and always inspire me. You know, it's not as if I'm listening to uh, um, Coltrane or Miles or those folks anymore in order to really learn something. I'm just listening to it for enjoyment. Now, as a player, that's different. I, I, I always listen to just the history of great improvisation and, and try my best to, uh, um, you know, live up to their standards, but, um, basically that feels impossible. That's why I compose more than I play. <laughs> yeah well fair enough um how are you finding
1: any one particular composer that you're just becoming exposed to uh are you are people suggesting them to you how does one lead to the next how does that happen
2: well you know you, you hang out with other musicians who who tell you about stuff and i i have a few friends who are real um pros in the classical music field and they suggest something that leads to something else but you know I spent years kind of just looking and listening and I went to school and all that. So it's sort of just a huge backlog of listening that I'm I'm trying to catch up with all the time. I mean just to really listen to what Charles Ives did can be a very complete way to spend a few months. Mm-hmm. That's just one person and and that that's an important composer to me, but I I I don't get enough chance to really Listen.
1: Do you think is there any kind of unifying thread or theme that runs through the composers that that appeal to you aesthetically or kind of compositionally?
2: Hmm. I don't really know. I don't. I don't think so. But there might be. Mm. I. I. I guess my tendency is to go towards the more kind of romantic and mystical composers and not so much the super brainy ones. Mm. So I'm not particularly attracted to the amazing complexity of certain contemporary composers or or almost contemporary, Um, even though I'm somewhat fascinated and always amazed by what some of these folks can do. I tend to just need to be moved emotionally to want to have an experience with a piece of music so
1: As we were uh, getting ready to start recording, you were talking about writing a what to me sounds like a remarkably ambitious work um, in what maybe is a more traditional classical vein. I don't even know if that's correct, but if it's something we can talk about. If not, I'll edit out this question, but if it is, I'd love to hear more about the, the bassoon piece.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, there's a guy who played on a couple of my records in the, when I lived in the Bay Area in the, in the 90s, Paul Hansen, who's truly the greatest living bassoon improviser, and the bassoon is an incredibly hard instrument to play, but he um, uses effects and can make the bassoon um, truly integrate into a jazz fusion or or, or just straight ahead jazz uh, situation or even rock and roll or funk. And um, so I'm writing a piece for him, which will have improvisation, and which is essentially yeah, bassoon concerto which um, is really really challenging
1: can we talk about
2: the Holy Abyss project and how that how that came to be <laughs> yeah that um was a uh um collaboration with this italian bassist who who i met and he wanted to make a record and so he knew a really great piano player who lives in norway roy powell and he had worked with kong vu who we used and then we got dan weiss to play drums and both wrote music for it and it was uh kind of um I don't know, a way to make music that, that wasn't terribly difficult, but was, uh, st- still had some interesting compositional ideas on it and brought together some people who, who had chemistry even if they hadn't played together before, and uh, it was great playing with Kung Fu, And um, the session was really interesting and fun for me, I, I had a blast. Um, it's, it's difficult to play the music live because we all live thousands of miles away from each other, but um, I'm, I'm really, really glad we did the record.
1: Uh, what made it interesting for you?
2: Well, I think, first of all, playing with Kung Vu and doing a couple of his pieces was really a blast because that guy's an amazing musician, and I'd never played with him before. Mm. I don't know why, but I just hadn't. And um, and it was also fun to do a collaboration with another uh, player, because you often put out your your own records, of course. And it's fun to sort of share the writing responsibilities and and the organizational responsibilities. And I also got a chance to play a kind of more out there electric guitar than I typically do on my own projects. So those are some reasons. How much uh, kind of collaboration on the actual compositions? very little of that it was just our own pieces sure
1: For example in writing for that kind of ensemble the one on holy abyss versus on writing for search are there things that things that you can apply to both even though the music and the instrumentation are really quite different are there kind of compositional techniques from the classical world for example that that fit in both places or is there a joel harrison compositional technique no some
2: overarching thing definitely no there's no there's no overarching technique i would say that you know, each piece is different and each project is different. And um, basically for this project, I reached back to three pieces I'd already composed mm. and I upgraded them a little bit uh, after listening to them and changed a few things and just um, brought them into this situation. So um, I think that sometimes you're composing music that is more for the purposes of inspiring the player and there's a little more open, a little more free. And then sometimes you're writing something that really features the ensemble and is more packed with information and has less improvisation. So it's all just about the focus you want to bring to a certain piece of music because let's face it, you know, calling you, you don't have to call something great, um, it doesn't have to be complex to be called great. I mean, Thelonious Monk wrote the greatest jazz vehicles, improvisational vehicles, and some of the pieces are rather simple, but, but they'll be played for hundreds of years, probably. And then there's another kind of jazz composition, which, um, is more complex and they're different it's hard to even call them the same thing jazz sometimes but yeah. for lack of a better term that's what we do if there's improvisation involved it seems like not very much music enters the standard repertoire
1: anymore i and i,
2: I think that time is over
1: yeah
2: i mean nobody even if you write a really catchy tune everybody plays their own music now and if they don't play their own music, how are they going to ever hear your piece? Well, that was one. Exa- exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. And nobody, there's no common language anymore, except the, the same common language that jazz has had forever. So it's a really interesting point.
1: Is the lack of a common language, a, a good thing or a bad thing or an indifferent thing?
2: I'm not sure. I think that, I think that the, common language seems a little dated to me. I mean, if I go to a jam session and they're playing the same songs that they were playing 30 years ago, when I was going to jam sessions, there's something comforting and something annoying about that. So I think more to the point is there's no, there's almost no situation except in school now where you can just get together and learn music. So, where, where are you gonna, there's, there's no, um, sort of bandstand in New York where you can get up there night after night and just play tunes over and over again. You're gonna get up there, you're gonna play your, your own compositions most likely, and then you're gonna wait four months till the next time when you do it. So, uh, jazz is just, changing and it's it's changing in some good ways maybe in some not so good ways and most of the not so good ways have to do with the business environment not the music Mm. i think
1: yeah it feels to me like there are some common languages developing in discrete pockets there are groups of people who you know cluster around some good writing or you know i think of people like um, in, in the Indo-Pak coalition with Vijay Iyer and Rajesh
2: Mahantapad. Yeah, but they're kind of not sharing anybody else. They're not playing each other's pieces except when they go out and play their own gigs Fair enough, together. Yeah. And they're certainly not... Um, no, but is anybody else playing a Vijay Iyer tune? I mean, they probably will. He's a single example, maybe, of somebody who's famous enough so his music will filter down to some some kids in school and and they'll go out and perform it. But, um, I mean, I'm one of the only people I know who've done, you know, these albums full of of material that's outside the jazz canon, like country music or Paul Motion's music. Right. And uh, and Paul Motion music, I mean, if there ever was uh, jazz writing that was ripe for usage by the great body of jazz players that's it but i don't know if it's going to happen i mean they're going to put out a book of his music you know since he died so it, it has a chance of happening but um you know there's no uh, th- there's certainly no book of joel harrison's or vj Ayers or john hollenbeck's music Uh there may be someday but um it's uh it's it's yeah it's very much about your own vision as a composer right now which i think really has its subside, you know although how how is that different
1: from what monk did for example i mean although he did he did play music written by the people sometimes but i mean he's most known for playing his own well but he
2: really stands apart in that way as Mm. as does duke ellington because you know i don't think it was quite as common well i guess we really shouldn't use big bands as an example because maybe it's a little different true but for small small combo jazz I think it was a little bit uh, more unusual to be such a single-minded writer like he was back then mm. I think there was a lot more of a tendency to um, for everybody to be kind of playing a lot of the same tunes and yeah. not necessarily as much writing their own sure.
1: When I sometimes when I hear you talk about the music i mean you you kind of laugh when you say it, but you you make a lot of comments about being you know kind of relatively obscure. I mean, you have this big body of work, and it would be hard for us to go outside on the street and find anybody who's ever heard of anyone who's ever been on this show, for example <laughs> <True> and, <that. laughs> um, I, I I sometimes wonder like what fuels you to keep writing this music that really we we all know, no matter who the you was in that sentence, a very tiny subset of people mm-hmm. are going to hear. What makes it inspiring or feel like it's worth it?
2: Well, I feel that any artist has the same answer to this question. and That is that they were born to do it and they can't help it. So it's an internal uh, motor, mm. really, that you can't turn off, and uh, I, I think it's mysterious why it happens and how it happens, but um, I just thank God that I stay interested and that I stay inspired, because uh, it is a very, very internally motivated position to be in when you're an artist.
1: But you do do both those things? You You, you find yourself interested and inspired and... Yeah, I
2: go through phases. I mean, there sure. there, there are times when I've, I feel a little uninspired and I get really bored with what I'm doing and I sort of get a, the urge to get inspired in some way and typically I'll seek, seek out some new music or a new project. And that's kind of my my trick. I think that I continually invent projects for myself that will force me to develop something. So that I can be um, challenged. And so, for instance, I was feeling kind of frustrated and bored with my guitar playing not long ago. Um, And actually, part of it was I put together this um, guitar festival, my second guitar festival that I've done in New York. And I had this, this night of eight people playing Jim Hall's music. It was a great night. Yeah. And I had really some of the greatest guitarists in the world. I mean, the only people who were absent were superstars. Right. Basically, all <laughs> the all the best semi-obscure guitarists. And um, and to on me, a side note, please create a band called
1: All the Best Semi-Obscure Guitarists. <laughs> yeah. I just want to go to one show where that's the booking yeah, right. live.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, obscure compared to you know you well, two, fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. They're, uh, they're very you know, famous in our little scene. Absolutely. Anyway. So, so I listened to all these, these folks and I was like, Oh man, these people are so good. I, I just felt deficient, you know, Mm. listening to them because they were so incredible. And so I thought, man, I gotta, I gotta go back to my roots. I gotta figure out because, because most of these guys, they're, they're true jazz aficionados. They, actually grew up playing jazz and they stuck with playing jazz you know and some of them have been you know playing the same tunes for 30 or 40 years let's fight their semi-obscurity by naming a few names yes uh steve cardness Juris, adam rogers mm-hmm. you know the yeah. super um you know uh, the, the the crowd of complete excellence yeah so i um So I went back and I thought about the first music that really inspired me when I was growing up and, and it was, uh, this kind of mishmash of styles that, that, that included jazz, but wasn't only jazz. And so I decided to create a set of music of all music written or released in 1970. And so I'm, I'm putting together a a whole set of music of, of those pieces, including classical pieces and country and jazz and, uh, you know, rock or folk. And that's, that's really fun. And so that's, that's more, one more way, like so many of my projects that I'm using to reinvigorate myself because, uh, I didn't want to go back to, um, you know, practicing some of the same things that I've been practicing. Huh?
1: Uh, I'll just say on that, on that 1970 uh, point, uh, David Brown's book Fire and Rain is about four records from yeah, in 1970. Yeah, Dan Ouellette told me about it's that. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really I just worth ordered checking that.
2: out. Okay, cool. Well, I, I hope it won't disappoint, but I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. So. Yeah. It was actually an incredible time for music. I it was mean, amazing, it's, yeah. It's really shocking how much great music came out around that time and was purchased and listened to. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these artists whose, whose music I'm going to be playing were famous not just w- well liked, but famous. Yeah, and doing some pretty unusual, crazy stuff. Was it you who just tweeted the other day that you were listening to Weasels Rip My Flesh? Yeah, Flash? yeah, <laughs> and said people bought this album in large numbers, and it's true. Yeah, that is one of the most fantastically weird records ever made. <laughs> oh, I completely agree. It's it's shockingly bizarre. I even for this somebody is Frank Zappa record we're talking about for folks who, yeah, even it, yeah. for those of us who who feel like we've heard everything, I went back and listened to that, and I was. I was just dumbfounded that people actually enjoyed and bought this record in in large numbers. You know, I was
1: reading an a article the other day about how um, it's kind of hip these days to say, like, oh, I don't like The Great Gatsby and, you know, Tolstoy is boring and all that kind of stuff. And we're creation, creating this nation of illiterates. And I kind of wonder if the same doesn't to some degree apply in the musical realm where even though we have access to everything all the time, it is possible to listen to, you know, obscure court music from Mozambique from the twenties right now, if you want to. Mm -hmm. Um, So we could hear anything all the time. And yet I wonder if the actual field of what we're really listening to isn't getting small. I mean, is that what keeps uh, whoever's making weasels now, if anybody is from being well known? I mean, is there just not an educated listener base for it anymore or was there never? And, People were just more willing to hmm. suspend well, their disbelief. I don't let know.
2: me go back for a second. How does this connect with The Great Gatsby?
1: So, in other words, that uh, the despite the availability of great literature, we are narrowing down to a culture okay. where people no longer have the tools to deal with an 800-page uh, Gatsby is not that example, but for example, like Brothers Karamazov mm-hmm. or Anna Karenina or some large right. novel where you really have to work and stick with it. That that's no longer the vogue, and now it's hmm. you know it's yeah shorter, more palatable things.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's a huge issue. And first of all, if it is in vogue to not like something like the great Gatsby, it it really makes me despair. And I think people who, who talk like that are just idiots, you know, to say that you don't, there's, there's, there's commonly agreed upon great things. I'm not saying every last person should like those, but i I believe that it's not about whether you like something or not. it's about appreciating greatness.
0: Mm.
2: I don't have to like everything Mozart r- wrote to appreciate his greatness and there seems to be um you know always naysayers in the group who want to take down you know some of the great historical pieces of art and I just think you you need to get past this idea of liking and disliking it's it's about uh being open to genius wherever wherever it lives whether it's your style or not and and i one of the things that that's really troubling to me about the time we live in and i can't swear that it's been that much different in the past i only know my own time is that Uh, yeah, basically everybody wants things to be easy in, in their art, or most people. And while I'm a big proponent of, of art that, that is, um, digestible upon the first experience of it, I also think that if we don't challenge ourselves with, with more elaborate works to either listen to or look at or read, then, um, we're letting an entire part of our culture and a lot of possibilities just die off. And I'm amazed at, um, at people's disinterest, actually, really intelligent people. I'm amazed. It's shocking. And I don't know what to do about it or what to say about it. But I, I feel really clear that, um, part of my work can't give in to that notion. Mm. And I, I, I love a good pop song. It's got nothing to do with being a snob, but people need to, you know, stop being so goddamn lazy. That's my feeling. (laughs) Uh, a couple of weeks ago,
1: at my house, we had a, a gang of people get together and we read Whitman's Leaves of Grass aloud. And that's a pretty, you know, digestible work wow. in most ways. Good I mean, the, for you. Yeah, the language is. <laughs> I do that every once in a while. But, um, uh, invite me next time. That okay, like the next fun. one's in May. We're gonna do uh, like uh, beat authors, um, where we just read poetry aloud. So the uh, at the end of it. Uh, someone was saying, oh, I, you know, I actually found a lot of that pretty easy to understand. I felt like I was able to get what it was he was saying. And I often don't feel that way about poetry. I feel like it's very obscure. It's kind of written to exclude me. And another person in the group, and I was happy to hear this, piped in and said, well, maybe that's just because you have to go back more times to those difficult things. It's not It's not because they're difficult that they're devoid of content or that there's not something meaningful there or even something meaningful that could speak to you. It just may take more work. You may have to go back mm-hmm. again and again to figure out and yeah. read more of that person's work to kind of figure out how their syntax works and how they use language. And I feel the same
2: way about music. Well, I think that that there's a corollary with jazz because you tend to feel the impact of a poem when it's read aloud mm. more, which almost never happens, of course, in our lives, unless we're poets and go into readings all the time. And similar with jazz, I mean, I would say that most of my friends haven't a clue what jazz is and they don't understand what I'm doing and et cetera, et cetera. But I do feel that if they experience music live, which sometimes they're loath to, um, (laughs) that it, it, it makes a lot more sense to them. I think jazz is really most powerful, obviously when it's seen in performance. And I think that's one of the real, um, Well, I don't know if tragedy is too strong a word, but it's it's one of the particularly negative aspects of our time where you have a tremendous number of really great artists and a tremendous lack of places for them to present their work, not just in New York, but all over the world.
1: Is there something? Is there any responsibility that the artist bears when they actually do have a room, a stage, and some people in it, to then try to bridge the gap between the audience and whatever education or knowledge of the music they may have, and what's about to be performed? So, is there, you know, for example, saying, "Here's what you're about to hear," or "This piece draws on this," or any of that kind of thing? Does that does that help? Does it hurt? Is it situational?
2: I think it's situational. I mean, I'll tend to do that if I'm at a school or something, or. Um feel a particular need to tell the backstory on a piece. But I personally find it really annoying when people uh, tell me what they're going to do before they do it. I don't want to know. But of course, I'm a musician, so I just want to experience the music. So that's probably a a better question to ask non-musicians. Because as
1: as an audience member, I often find that it adds to the impact to me if I have some idea of what's happening and i'm a fairly educated audience member um i mean i've been to jazz shows with people who didn't realize musicians were improvising for example that you happens know, all the time yeah. people
2: that's the most common question i get from people is when were the when were people improvising and when were they not improvising
1: yeah and I, I mean the although i mean like i'm the thing the point i was making was at an even more basic level than that that the idea that anything was being created in the moment is not one that occurred to the, some folks that I've gone to shows with. And I feel like even just taking a moment to say like, Oh, part of what you're hearing is being created on the spot that adds such a different understanding to what you're listening to rather than just thinking I'm listening to some incredibly difficult composition that I can't follow, or I have no idea how they're figuring out. You spend the whole time wondering how does anyone know where they are? Or, you know, no one's looking at the music paper. Why is that? There is no paper. Why is that? It seems like there's some kind of very basic things about what we do, what you guys do that, I think we assume everyone knows, but maybe they don't.
2: Boy, it would never occur to me to say that. I would just assume that people know it. I yeah. mean, uh, I can't
1: I think almost everyone would
2: assume that. In the, middle of, in the middle of a set saying, oh, by the way, we're improvising up here. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I meant to say it exactly like that. By the <laughs> way, for all the
1: morons in the room, yeah. some of this we're making up. But I mean, even to say, like, uh, I don't know, I am always a proponent of making things less opaque because i think Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why no one listens to this music is that everyone feels like the bar to entry is so high Hmm. there's so much you have to bring with you i I don't i mean the number of times people have said to me when i tell them what i do for a living say oh yeah i don't understand jazz yeah i just say well people don't
2: well uh okay duly noted i'll think about that next time i'm on the yeah. i'm I'm
1: sorry i'm not trying to advocate or to pick on you but just that the Yes, there are things to understand, but it's not the enjoyment of the music is not purely based on your understanding. And so sometimes even being told that might be nice.
2: Well, I think I've really been thinking a lot, to tell you the truth, why people don't care about jazz. Mm. And especially I have thought about and written about why in the so-called indie rock world there's very little interest in jazz, if I can generalize. In the classical world, it's similar. There's a lot of connections being made between rock music and classical music these days. Um, but the connectivity to jazz is small from both sides of that. And I've really tried to figure out why that is. And I I don't really know the answer. I think that part of it is that, um, people are attracted to, to classical music, um, are uncomfortable with the idea that uh, things are left open and they're th- these kind of long solos and they're not really sure what's going on. And and I've had to ask myself, and I think it's a legitimate, though, though perhaps touchy, question, you know, really how interesting is hearing a long solo to anybody except a diehard jazz fan? I mean... Coltrane's one thing, but sort of everybody else, you know, <laughs> but even Coltrane, I mean, my God, that's, that's, uh, that, that's something that, um, is, is certainly going to have a, a limited audience unless it's something like my favorite things. Sure. Um, and so, uh, I think similarly in the rock world, there's a, a tendency to, to want to have things, you know pretty organized. And the idea of improvisation is that, you know, it'll take away from the creation of the song or whatever. And, um, I'm still, I mean, I grew up with music that combined rock music and improvisation and I thought that was the greatest thing. And if you add classical music to that, that's sort of my whole point of view. And when so, you talk about growing up, are you talking about things like Allman the Dead Brothers. of the Allman Brothers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I loved hearing solos in the midst of all that. Or Zappa, who we mentioned before, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, it kept things alive. And um, why there there hasn't been a little more of that in the pop world? Uh, I mean, there's. I don't know. I, find, I I hate to generalize because, of course, then there's this whole jam band phenomenon, which is that's all they're doing, um, and yet that tends to lack the really strong s- song structures. Mm. So, you know, my idea of great music is really uh, original, strong structures that provide a vehicle for improvisation and then can also lead to extended periods of written music, and that the three um, dovetail with each other. Maybe there's vocals and maybe there isn't. It's, it's, It's something that's actually not done all that often.
1: Yeah, I mean, to take the almonds as an example, I mean, it strikes me that that's music that even while the improvisation was going on, an incredibly familiar structure existed underneath it. I mean, everybody got the like four on the floor kind of country rock thing. It's really easy to understand. The songs are catchy. And so even when people are soloing, you can hear it's immediately obvious how it relates to what was happening before, because what was happening before is still happening beneath it. I mean, it might be, you know, churning and the rhythms might be being displaced That's a little true. bit. That's
2: true. And to a jazz musician, maybe that can start to sound a little stiff. But I will say that that all the people in that band, both the original band and, and I think the current one, are very conversant in jazz. Sure. Even though they wouldn't call themselves jazz players. And you hear that in Butch Truck's drumming, for instance. And I think that because of that of the background that they have that um, it can be far more interesting than, than that type of improvisation by people who have, have no idea what jazz is. Mm. It's a lot more free and a lot more groovy and a lot more, um, uh, I don't know, even you could say rooted in black music.
1: Yeah, I saw Derek Trucks uh, a few years ago, and he was playing you know, one of his tunes at a big festival crowd. And all of a sudden, he went into a on rolling Kirk piece, which mm-hmm. he played for like 15 minutes, and the crowd yelled and cheered the entire time because he just he incorporated into his aesthetic his very easily kind of relatable music in this really great groove this really cool piece of Rasson's composition and then improvised for, you know, like 12 minutes after he played the theme a couple times. Yeah. And I thought, like, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it doesn't feel to me like that's dumbing down the Rassan tune, and it doesn't feel all. to you know, and it's totally connecting with this crowd who are loving it and who don't care at all that I, I'm sure 90% of them have no idea that it was a tune written yeah. by Rasson Roland Kirk. But well, he's
2: a really smart, accomplished musician, and, you know, there's not too many guys out there like him yeah and by the way Derek if you're listening I'd like to make a record with you <laughs> <laughs> I don't think
1: you are though <laughs> no I think he probably isn't because the name of this show is the jazz session
2: <laughs> but he <laughs> loves, loves jazz that's true that's true actually yeah and I, I just did a project that that we just finished the recording with a brilliant Indian Siro player hmm. and um, you know that's another commonality that I share with him is that he loves Indian music and has studied it, and and so, um, uh, you know, I really relate to the, his approach to slide guitar, and try to do a lot of that myself. So,
1: N- you know, not to pose the 64 billion dollar question here, but is there any way out of all the stuff that we just talked about? I, it, all the conversations with people in the jazz world of about your generation, and I start, I sound more like this myself now these days too. <laughs> often feel like. Like, man, th- crowds were so much hipper back then, and there were places to play, and things were happening, and now it's just like a
2: death spiral. And you Yeah, know, I cool. don't... Well, boy, I first of all, I'm actually young enough to have not experienced the time <laughs> right. when there were great crowds. I pretty much have only experienced the not great crowds. I'm being only wah, semi-facetious, because... I think that he that I what what folks are referring to, who probably established themselves earlier than me, is a, a kind of golden period in Europe where you could really work a lot over there. Um, I think, especially in the seventies and eighties. In fact, Henry Threadgill was saying that that there's this bar on the east in the East Village, and they all used to just hang out there and. And somebody would come in and say, yeah, I need a tuba player for a tour. You know, you free? Just because they were there, they'd just fly over to Europe and do do that. And this would happen all the time. You got your passport with you? Okay, we're leaving tomorrow. It sounds exaggerated to me, but I, you know, I believe him. And certainly that's not happening anymore. And so, so certainly, uh, even though it's always been difficult and there's always been struggles for people, I think there was a lot more work and and decades prior to the one we're in now is it a death spiral i don't know about that That's true.
1: i don't want to put words in your mouth i
2: i think something um that there's an enormous challenge we're all facing and um i think it's like the rest of the world that there's one percent of jazz players that are working all the time and they've just somehow through sheer force of will and incredible greatness, um, made it to the, through this glass ceiling and, and really because of the way, the way the world is structured right now, there's only so many people who can pop through that in any given year. The press has to select somebody and I'm not saying they do it on purpose. And I'm not saying they're being exclusionary. It's just the way the world works. Uh, and there's only a few people in the press who can even make a difference anymore. Okay. So all these forces have to combine to, to give somebody, uh, a certain amount of success, timing, amazing talent, uh, force of will, drive, desire to be working, a vision of who they are. They, they, they probably should be uh, very articulate. You know, a lot of things like this. And if it all comes together, then it can happen. Now, I don't see things changing in the near future. I really don't. And what what that means to me is that um, I just have to maintain that in, that internal part of myself that loves what I do and cares about what I do and believes in what I do. And I have to support, this is key, my fellow musicians who are doing the same. And I think we all need to work harder at that. I think that you're doing a great thing with this show. I think you're uh, um, one of these people who just does this for the love of music. And I think that all of us have to sort of uh, keep doing what we can to feed each other whether it's going to each other's shows or encouraging each other uh, in our work or just hanging out together and laughing. And as long as there's a sense of community and a sense of that we're challenging ourselves and growing, uh, the music will be there when the the performance opportunities arise, however rare they are. And short of that, I've got no other prescription. Mm. Can you tell me about your big band? Yeah, I finally, after all these years of writing for small groups and, and sort of being afraid or unwilling to write for a big band, feeling sort of that it wasn't, it wasn't my world in a way. Um, I got over that and I applied for a grant to write for a big band. And lo and behold, I actually got the grant and it's been incredibly fun. I had no idea how much fun it was. And I, I have a group of 20 people and, uh, we played twice. We still haven't recorded. And, um, it's one of the most exciting things I've ever done because the orchestral possibilities are so enormous and the sound is so immense <laughs> when people are playing. And there's so many, um, things you learn about orchestration as you're doing it. And, and I also think in a practical way, it can help me because one of the ways that guys work these days is they sell big band charts or go do, uh, big band clinics, because there's so many of them in colleges. Mm. And so, um, you know, that that's one of the the uh, two or three new projects that are currently in the works for me.
1: Is there anyone that you've reached out to with help for, uh, you know, just kind of figuring out the orchestration, how to actually do the the technical aspects of it?
2: Mostly I taught myself, but mm. I sat down before we... Played the music for the first time with J.C. Sanford, who's a conductor and a really great composer, and asked him if he thought anything looked suspicious. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I've had a, a couple people who I would ask advice of, you know, who are really great composers like mm. uh, Ohad Talmor and Jacob Garchik. And, you know, I'm a big one for saying, hey, what do you think? Is this, what's wrong with this? Because how else are we going to learn? You can't, sure. can't be afraid to to take criticism, and it's really a big subject. You know, you, you whew, boy, so much history and so many possibilities and so many little things, little tricks that people who've written a lot for big band learn. Do you play in the band or do you direct yeah. up front? Okay. No, I'm I'm not a conductor. I got J C Sanford to conduct it, and I play guitar in it. Nice, which is really fun, also
1: what was the experience like that the the first few notes of the first gig when you were, or the, maybe even the oh, first rehearsal when
0: you were hearing that come no, out No the band. rehearsal
2: was terrible <laughs> you know it always is you know the first time <laughs> you hear the stuff you're like oh my god what have <laughs> no. i done And then you go back and revise and mm. I mean i'm sli- i'm being slightly facetious but sure. but the first rehearsals usually tough with really complicated music but the performance uh, was really exciting. God, I mean, I swear to God, I almost had tears in my eyes when I heard that first huge uh chord come in. And I was like, oh my God, I, I did this. And it sounds amazing to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm on a train that's running 80 miles an hour. And it's just this enormous sound. It's incredible. Oh, that's and that's what I hope to experience with this orchestra piece, is if, if I ever finish it. Because, you know, the immensity of of 20 or 40 or 50 or 60 players compared to to uh, 4 or 5 or 6. It's, it's really something. Uh, is
1: there a chance that uh, those of us who didn't see the big band shows will get a chance to hear it
2: on record? Oh, definitely. We're going to record sometime in the fall, but to be honest, I'm still trying to find one more gig mm. for all those people out there who are bookers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, sorry. There yeah. aren't any. <laughs> That's right, exactly. The um, two of you who are still out yeah. there. Yeah. Because I want to do one more performance before we record, so I'm trying to figure out where to do that. So we'll hook something up um, in uh, the summer or the spring. But, you know, actually, it's amazing how many big bands there are in New York. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, but, for instance, at the Tea Lounge over in Brooklyn, every Monday. It's amazing. There's almost a different band every Monday. I mean, how amazing is that? I mean, the the sheer numbers of players in this town are shocking. Yeah, it really is. It's just incredible. The list of subs for a big band, all these, I thought I knew a bunch of people. I don't know anybody. There are 10 (laughs) sax players I'd never even heard of. Amazing. It's great in a way. It makes it even more daunting, though. Oh, uh, I'm well, sure. For for this Big Band project, uh,
1: was it uh, completely new music or did you kind yeah. of reach back in no so it's all original stuff? Mm-hmm. And was there any uh, for the purposes of the grant did you have to give some sort of thematic concept or something to the music or how did that work?
2: There was kind of a thematic concept that I'm not sure how much of the original concept survived. Mm. The um uh, I know that I was thinking a lot about it, but the music sort of took its own shape sure. as I was going along, but actually you mentioned beat writers earlier. One of the main um, sections of of the music was to some degree inspired by On the Road mm-hmm. and the, the, the sort of um, semi-ecstatic, hysterical uh, profusion of uh, sentences that, that just kind of blows at you um, from that piece of, of literature. For all the teens out there, that's a
1: book, not the crappy movie that's about to come out. <laughs> oh, my lord. <laughs> but anyway, I don't want to sound too much fustier than I already have. Well, I think that's a at least a mildly uplifting place to end it. My guest is guitarist Joel Harrison. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure talking to you again and thinking about the music with you. Thanks so much. My
2: pleasure, Jason. Thank you.
1: That's music from guitarist Joel Harrison, one of two new recordings he's on right now, one called Search on Sunnyside Records and another called Holy Abyss on Cuneiform Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock. Murat Verdi and Nicholas Payton, and I hope by you. Please become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join for as little as $10 a month. If you value keeping these independently produced jazz conversations coming to you twice a week, each and every week, then please become a member. It's very inexpensive, and your membership really means a lot to me. And I don't just mean in like a spiritual, touchy-feely way, although it does that too, but it actually means a lot to my ability to buy groceries and pay the rent and that kind of thing. So please do become a member. Meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the, Oh, you know what? Just before I say that, for those of you who stuck around all the way to the end at the end of this show for years has been my, of the recording of my two kids, uh, Bernie and John. Originally it was just Bernie because John wasn't old enough. And then it's Bernie and John when they both could talk. And now there's one at the beginning, too. And I've noticed more than one person thinks it's just one kid, but it's actually two kids. So uh, I don't know why you might care about that, but that's both my sons, Bernie and John, nine and six, of whom I'm very, very proud and love very much. And I'm glad that every show begins and ends with their voices because there's nothing I'd rather hear. So anyway, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Hit it, Red.
0: Bye. 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 Bye.